This is Space Time, Series 26, Episode 72, for broadcast on the 16th of June, 2023. Coming up on Space Time, a new study claims everything in the universe will eventually evaporate, not only black holes. New evidence shows that the asteroid Bennu is nothing more than a pile of rubble, and Boeing's trouble-plagued Starliner spacecraft suffers yet more delays. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. New theoretical research has shown that Stephen Hawking may have been right about black holes evaporating over time, although not completely. The study supports the idea that Hawking radiation will cause black holes to eventually evaporate. But the event horizon, the black hole's point of no return, isn't as crucial to the issue as previously thought. The new findings, reported in the journal Physical Review Letters, suggest that gravity and the very curvature of space-time itself also cause the same radiation. This means that all large objects in the universe, like the remnants of stars, will eventually evaporate. So how does it all work? Well, on the quantum scale, the universe is filled with virtual particle pairs constantly popping into and out of existence from the quantum field. Each virtual particle pair consists of a matter and antimatter particle. And since matter and antimatter annihilate when they come into contact with each other, the virtual particle pairs disappear again as soon as they're formed. We call these quantum fluctuations, and we know they're real because they can be seen in things like the Casimir effect. In quantum field theory, the Casimir effect is a physical force acting on the macroscopic boundaries of a confined space which arises from quantum fluctuations in the field. It's named after the Dutch physicist Hendrik Casimir who predicted the effect for electromagnetic systems back in 1948. Stephen Hawking used a clever combination of quantum physics and Einstein's theory of general relativity to argue that the spontaneous creation and annihilation of virtual particle pairs occurring near the event horizon of a black hole could cause the particle pairs to be separated before they can disappear again, with one half of the particle pairs falling into the black hole, forcing the other to become a real particle. According to Hawking, this would eventually result in the evaporation of black holes through Hawking radiation, though it would take trillions upon trillions of years. In this new study, Michael Wondrak, Walter Van Sulikom and Hino Falke from Radboud University revisited the process and investigated whether or not the presence of an event horizon was crucial. They combined techniques from physics, astronomy and mathematics to examine what happens when pairs of particles are created in the surroundings of a black hole and they concluded that new particles could also be created far beyond the event horizon. The search suggested that in addition to the well-known Hawking radiation, there's also a new form of radiation far beyond a black hole. The very curvature of space-time plays a big role in creating this radiation. The authors say particles were already separated there by the tidal forces of the gravitational field. Whereas it was previously thought that no radiation was possible without the event horizon, they say this study shows that the event horizon isn't even necessary. That means that objects without an event horizon, such as the remnants of dead stars and other large mass objects in the universe, also have this sort of radiation. 
And after a very long period of time, that would lead to everything in the universe eventually evaporating just like black holes. Now, if correct, it all changes not only science's understanding of Hawking radiation, but also our view of the universe and its future. This is space-time. Still to come, the asteroid Bennu found to be just a pile of rubble, and Boeing's trouble-plagued Starliner spacecraft suffers yet another setback. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Data from NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission has confirmed that the asteroid Bennu isn't a solid rock, but composed mostly of piles of rubble loosely held together by gravity. The diamond-shaped half-kilometer-wide asteroid is covered in grey jagged boulders with sharp rocks and ridges, holes and craters. It's a wild, primitive world whose orbit brings it uncomfortably close to Earth at regular intervals, resulting in Bennu being listed as a potentially hazardous near-Earth object with the greatest risk of impact currently calculated for September 24, 2182. The OSIRIS-REx mission arrived at Bennu on December 3, 2018, following a two-year journey. It orbited the asteroid and mapped Bennu's surface in great detail, seeking out potential sample collection sites. Analyses from orbit allowed calculations of Bennu's mass and its distribution. In October 2020, OSIRIS-REx successfully touched down on the surface of Bennu and then collected a sample using an extendable robotic arm that was meant to be a simple touch-and-go manoeuvre. However, unexpectedly, the lack of any real surface cohesion meant the arm and the spacecraft itself, for that matter, experienced no resistance at the surface and so continued to descend for about half a metre below the ground before OSIRIS-REx's rockets activated a pre-programmed burn to lift the spacecraft back up into orbit. Looking down as it departed, the spacecraft saw an elliptical crater some 9 metres long with some 6 tonnes of material blasted out of it. If the probe hadn't been pre-programmed to lift itself back into orbit a few seconds after landing, the half-kilometre-wide asteroid would have swallowed it whole. On May 10, 2021, OSIRIS-REx successfully completed its departure from Bennu and began its journey back to Earth. On September 24 this year, OSIRIS-REx's return capsule will re-enter Earth's atmosphere and land under parachute in the US Air Force's Utah Test and Training Range, where it will be eagerly collected and quickly sent to NASA laboratories. Jonathan Nally, the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, says further analysis of Bennu confirms there was no cohesion or other forces holding the outer layers of Bennu in place, except, that is, for the asteroid's feeble gravity. Yeah, OSIRIS-REx is, uh, as you say, NASA spacecraft went out to this asteroid Bennu, and the idea was that it would just very carefully, very slowly sidle up to this uh, asteroid and stick out a robot arm and touch the surface of the asteroid with a robot arm and grab some samples of the sort of rocky, dusty stuff that was no doubt on the surface, scoop them up, stick them in a canister and bring them back to Earth. And that's in fact exactly what it's done. It's, it's done the sample collection now. But, so what happened when <laughs> what happened when the spacecraft sidled up and uh, stuck out its robot arm just down touched the surface? It had a, it's got, um, it had a, um, a, a nitrogen gas system on the end of the arm, which was designed to let out a puff of gas, which would stir up some of the material from the surface and blow it into this um, collection scoop, right? All good stuff. So what they weren't really expecting 
is that the um, the surface of this asteroid would be a loose rubble pile rather than fairly solid rock with just a loose or, or thin covering of, of dusty rocky stuff. So it's long been pondered whether some asteroids or maybe a majority of asteroids or all of them are actual big solid lumps of rock or are they loose rubble piles just you know, barely held together by their, their very tiny gravity. So it turns out that the surface of uh, Bennu is uh, a loose rubble pile. And so when this nitrogen gas blast went out, it gouged uh, a crater nine metres long and ejected about... 6,000 kilograms of dust and rock out into space, and, and the spacecraft, instead of sort of hitting the surface and stopping, it went in. The robot arm went in by about half a metre into the surface of the thing, and so if it, had, if it had kept going, who knows what would have happened, whether it would have got stuck there or, or half got buried or something, but fortunately it didn't. It was able to back out. It's like and, a giant um, dust bunny. It's like a giant dust bunny or you know, quicksand, it's like sticking a hand in quicksand or something. It's, um, so they were sort of lucky there. But, um, but look, that, this is good because they've learned something about this asteroid. And this is the whole point of doing this about these asteroids. We won't need Bruce Willis after all. Uh, I, think, I think we never did, to be honest. But look, um, you, you could be right. What was the name of that movie he was in? Um, was it Deep Impact or the other one? Oh, no, it was the one called Armageddon, wasn't it? Yeah. Armageddon, yeah. Yeah, Armageddon yeah, no, that movie. I, I always forget the name of that movie. But, you know, so what if I can't remember Armageddon? It's not the end of the world. Thank you very much. I'm here all week. We're in a fascinating time when it comes to asteroid studies now. It's not just smashing into an asteroid with the DART mission. We've had a couple of Japanese missions now. The Hayabusa missions study asteroids close up and personal. And now uh, OSIRIS-REx. Yeah, look, and it's really remarkable that they're doing this. I mean, they're just the most brilliant people to be able to devise these missions and get them out there, make them work and bring these samples back home because asteroids are, in one sense, thought to be sort of the builder's rubble of the solar system. They're sort of leftover bits from when everything formed in our solar system. So by studying them, you're studying some of the most ancient, unchanged materials in the solar system. So that's of great interest for scientists to work on their ideas of the formation of the solar system and how everything has evolved. But the other thing, of course, is that if we ever do need Bruce Willis, if we've got one of these things coming towards us, then we really want to know, is it one big solid rock? And if we go out and give it a nudge, it's just going to move away. Or is it a loose rubble pile? And if we go out and give it a nudge, is it, is it just going to break up into lots of pieces and all those pieces then are coming towards us and we can't deal with it? So it really is important to know your enemy in this sense or your potential enemy, which is why they're, they're trying these different asteroids out there and trying to learn as much about them as possible. So it turns out that probably a lot of asteroids are big rubble piles. And um, if we ever do spot one coming towards us, we, you know, hopefully we've got enough time and you know, hopefully decades to go out, do a reconnaissance mission, see what sort of asteroid it is and whether we we can afford to hit it with something and knock it off course or whether we have to be a bit more judicious in what we do, try some other methods. So it's both scientifically interesting and it could have a practical application one day if we have a spot one coming towards us. It's exactly the same with comets we're finding now too. The, the European Space Agency's Rosetta mission show that not all comets are dirty snowballs. Some of them are really solid chunks of rock. They are. Look, you, you go back to the 1980s when Comet Halley came around and the Giotto mission, yeah. the European Space Agency Giotto mission, gave us our very first close-up look at a comet, Comet Halley, the famous Comet Halley. And what they were not expecting was that it was basically pitch black. It wasn't this bright, shiny thing made of ice at all. It was, it was this tar-covered black thing, quite large. And so we quickly went from the old idea of comets being dirty snowballs to comets actually being snowy dirt balls. Mm. 
which is probably more like it. You know, they're, they're probably more substantial and then just covered with ices or, or, or mixed in with ices. And there's also this uh, crossover between comets and asteroids. It used to be comets made of ice, asteroids made of rock. And now we know that there are sort of ones in the middle and sometimes they discover something, they think it's an asteroid, and then sometime later, months or years later, oh, all of a sudden it's got a tail. Oh, that was a comet after all. And vice versa. So um, it's interesting. We're learning more and more and more about what's out there. That's Jonathan Nally, the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. And this is Space Time. Still to come, Boeing's trouble-plagued Starliner spacecraft suffers more delays, and later in the science report, a new study warns that warming temperatures will see 80% of the world's coral reefs die within the next 80 years. All that and more still to come on Space Time. The planned launch of Boeing's trouble-plagued Starliner spacecraft has been postponed again, this time following new problems which officials say should have been caught much earlier. The mission, carrying two crew members to the International Space Station, was slated for July the 21st. But final reviews have found issues with parachute lines that don't meet safety standards and other problems including wire harnesses wrapped in white tape to protect them against scuffing, which apparently are using glue that's flammable. Now, these were issues that were already known about and present in last year's unmanned test flight to the space station, and they should have been caught years earlier. Now, Boeing project manager Mark Nappi is refusing to give a revised launch date for the spacecraft, saying he hopes it will take place before the end of the year. NASA contracted Boeing and SpaceX to carry crews to the International Space Station following the early retirement of the space shuttle fleet in 2011. SpaceX has now undertaken 10 man flights aboard their Falcon Dragons, while Boeing, on the other hand, had to repeat its 2019 unmanned Starliner test flight after software problems prevented the spacecraft from reaching the space station and additional software issues almost destroyed the spacecraft during its atmospheric re-entry phase. This is Space Time. Time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with the Science Report. A new study warns that warming temperatures will see nearly 80% of corals die in the next 80 years. The findings reported in the journal Ecology Letters are based on studies by scientists from the University of New South Wales who analysed 108 studies of coral health where coral reefs were surveyed for disease symptoms. They then link the disease surveys to ocean sea surface temperature records to understand how climate change, specifically ocean warming, influence coral disease prevalence worldwide and then perform modelling to forecast disease under future warming scenarios. The study shows the extent to which coral health will suffer under climate change, which threatens to wipe out entire reef habitats and devastate coastal communities. Paleontologists have confirmed that 107 million-year-old pterosaur bones discovered more than 30 years ago are the oldest of their kind ever found in Australia. The findings reported in the journal Historical Biology provide a rare glimpse into the life of these powerful flying reptiles that lived among the dinosaurs during the Cretaceous period. 
The fossils include a partial pelvis bone and a small wing bone discovered at Dinosaur Cove in the late 1980s. The authors found the bones belonged to two different pterosaur individuals. The partial pelvis belonged to a pterosaur with a wingspan exceeding 2 metres, and the smaller wing bone belonged to a juvenile pterosaur, the first ever reported in Australia. During the Cretaceous, between 145 and 66 million years ago, Australia was further south than where it is today, and the state of Victoria was within the polar circle, and covered in darkness for weeks on end during winter. Despite these seasonally harsh conditions, it's now clear that pterosaurs not only found a way to survive, but even thrive. A new study has found that drinking a light to moderate amount of alcohol could reduce your risk of a stress-related heart attack. But the findings reported in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology suggest it's probably still not the best way to manage this risk. Brain activity caused by chronic stress is known to be associated with heart attacks. So scientists looked at the brain activity, drinking habits and the rate of heart attacks amongst a group of 50,000 people. They found that drinking a light to moderate amount of alcohol was associated with a lower risk of heart attack, which could in part be explained by the alcohol helping to reduce stress. However, given the numerous other health risks alcohol carries, the researchers warned that people should really be looking for other things to help them reduce stress rather than relying on grog. And time now for the silliest story of the week. And it seems a real estate agent in California has sold the mansion where Michael Jackson overdosed and passed away using an unusual sales pitch. He claimed the famous moonwalker spirit was still haunting the place. However, he admits the only evidence that Jackson's spirit was haunting the old house were some open windows, the lingering sounds of distant music playing, and a broken chandelier. Although when you think about it, that could have been Liberace. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptic says it's far more likely the housekeeper simply forgot to close the windows and turn the radio off, but it was a great sales pitch, and it does fit right in with the mentality of the Hollywood set. You might not know, Michael Jackson was a famous pop singer. Of, of, oh, that uh, was before my re- time, was it? Okay, it was thank you. Oh, even worse. <laughs> Michael Jackson, famous, uh, probably one of the most famous singers in the world, once described as the second most famous face in the world after Muhammad Ali, believe it or not, in a survey done. See, I would have thought um, Elvis would have been up there ahead of Muhammad No, Ali. apparently this was a survey done across, the, especially in so well country. All right, right? yeah. Yeah, but, but Muhammad Ali was the most famous face and he was sort of taken over by Michael Jackson. Depends on which face he had at the time, of course. Yeah, he, uh-huh. I, I think he should have stopped after Thriller. I think so, yeah. Looking good then. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> he died rather prematurely. His mansion was for sale and the agent necessarily looking after a, you know, a high prestige property, etc., would go there every day. And he said that sometimes he thought the spirit of Michael Jackson was there because there were some open windows and he could hear music. And they noticed on one visit that the chandelier was broken. And we don't know how, how broken it was or whether it was one little glass crystal had fallen off or whether the whole thing was falling out of the ceiling. And that's the evidence. And that's the evidence, he says, for the uh, the house being um, uh, occupied by uh, Michael Jackson's spirit. Now, if you're selling an expensive house, you might want, above the fact it was Michael Jackson, you might want an extra little gimmick to raise interest in the place. And he referred to this house in, in a book he wrote, actually, about his experience as a real estate agent, which must be one of the most exciting books you can think of. They sold his place for 18 million US. Anyway, so... Um, the new owners thought that was an interesting idea to have Michael Jackson's ghost there. Absolutely no evidence whatsoever. One, that Michael Jackson has a ghost, has a spirit, 
Two, that it was in this house that he used to own. And three, that he was actually doing this stuff of opening windows. Good heavens, maybe the real estate agents forgot to close the windows. Heaven forbid. But real estate agents, of course, highly reliable people. Of course, You yes. can trust them absolutely. Yes, totally. Why would Michael Jackson need a window to be open to enter the house? Well, exactly. He'd pass right through the wall, wouldn't he? Yeah. And why, why would you open a window? Why not open all the windows? There's a few little holes in the story. So, yeah, this is, this is one of those strange stories that might just be a sales pitch. That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. That's the show for now. Space Time is available every Monday, Wednesday and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favourite podcast download provider and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Space Time's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimeWithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 